Amos 5, 21 through 24, in the clear word. The Lord says, I despise your religious festivals. I can't stand your worships and religious meetings. Even though you bring me your whole burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Even though you bring me your choice animals as peace offerings, I refuse to accept them. Stop your songs of praise. They're just so much noise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see justice flow through your streets like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Exodus 20, verse 11, English Standard Version, page 68. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So normally when I talk in front of people, I have a foot in my hand or a hand or a spine, a brain. Um, so I don't really know what my hands are gonna do today without hanging onto a body part, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, my topic today is Sabbath. And when I first picked this topic, I was super excited because I thought it would be really easy to talk about something I love. I love the foot. We learned this morning Dina loves office supplies. That's how I feel about the foot. I love the foot. And when I lecture on the foot, it's fun and I can do it for hours. And I actually think I'm pretty funny in a nerdy anatomy kind of way. Uh, but when I lecture on the Sabbath, I learned I'm not so funny. It's actually a lot harder than I thought it would be. You see, I'm passionate about the Sabbath, and I'm also passionate about anatomy. But my passion was only coming through when I was talking about functional anatomy. For the longest time, my talk today felt like a forced lecture instead of a passionate conversation about something I revolve my life around, something that defines me, something that I will never give up. And then I realized that when I lecture about the foot, I'm the expert. Anatomy is pretty black and white. It's easy to tell when something is broken. But when I lecture about the Sabbath, I am far from the expert. Because you see, the Sabbath is about love and human need. And there is no textbook that tells me exactly what to do to observe the Sabbath. Yes, you say we have the Bible, but if you did not notice, Jesus was obscurely silent on the details here. He tells us to love, rest, and serve others, but he does not go into detail. And for someone like me, who is a type A, driven rule follower, I want the details. I would have made a really great Old Testament Jew. As I mentioned, one of the, well actually I didn't mention, but one of the things I do outside of being a mom and working in the clinic, I teach. And one of the places I teach quite a bit is at a Jewish physical therapy school in Manhattan. During my trips there, I've learned that the Jewish culture is very similar to the Adventist culture in that there is a wide spectrum in beliefs on how to observe their religious practice. I was speaking with one of my students, and she told me she could not take a particular class that was coming up because the Jewish holiday was a three-day holiday. Her comment to me was that she could take the class, but she couldn't walk far enough to get to school. I instantly thought that was crazy, that she had no problem skipping the high holy days to spend the time with me, but the thing stopping her from coming to class was the walking thing. And for a moment, 
I got all judgy in my head. And I was going to ask her a question about it, but then I thought better of it. Because you see, my own tribe, we have some of that same craziness. I can't wear that wedding ring, but I can certainly wear my watch. I can't go to the theater, but I can watch the movie at home. And all of a sudden, that sounded a lot like, I can take the class, but I just can't walk there. So I let it go. I'm kind of a science nerd, if you didn't guess by the I like to touch body parts. Um, so any talk by me would not be complete without some form of science in it. And now don't worry, this is more like public health science, BuzzFeed kind of science, not differential equations today. But it is amazing to me how science is now finally revealing the wisdom that God showed when he established the Sabbath in the Garden of Eden so long ago. So what if I told you that meaningful weekly social connections can have as much of an effect on your health as quitting a pack-a-day smoking habit? That's huge. That women who attend religious services at least once a week are 20% less likely to die in any given year when adjusted for age-related factors. That a community's social bonds can accurately predict its mortality rates. That religious practice can forestall cognitive decline. That rituals such as singing, standing, and praying promote the release of serotonin, a neurotransmitter that aids in mood regulation, digestion, and wound healing. And finally, that mortality was significantly reduced for individuals who reported providing support to friends, relatives, and neighbors. What do all of these statements have in common? All of the beneficial findings resulted from the practice of things such as worship, fellowshipping with your community, and serving others. In the book, The Village Effect, How Face-to-Face -face Contact Can Make Us Healthier, Happier, and Smarter, the author discusses the apparent dichotomy of the health of the environment and the health of the Adventist residents who live in that environment. Loma Linda's groundwater bursts rates of perchlorate, which is a chemical byproduct of rocket fuel, that are 83% times higher than the recommended limits. That's not a good thing. And according to the National Lung Association, it has the worst ozone pollution in the nation. However, the residents of Loma Linda still live an average of six years longer than other Americans, and this author believes that part of it is because of the social connectedness among the Adventists who live there. There are other hypotheses involved as to why the Adventists live longer, but when you start to run a regression analysis on the data and extrapolate things out, you can see that a lot of the health that our community experiences can be attributed to the things that Sabbath provides for us. And just in case it's been a while since your last statistics class, a regression analysis is when you systematically add and subtract variables so you can see if one specific variable was actually providing the meaningful change. But let's leave the Adventists and talk about the Catholics for a moment. A study done on nuns showed that when nuns reached the age of 65, their chance of dying in any given year was 25% less than it was for other American women their age. Why would these nuns, whose diets were high in animal fat, who exercised very little, live significantly longer than women of the same age? The lifestyles of these nuns were largely contrary to what we say are longevity-inducing habits. We say abstaining from meat makes you healthy, they eat meat. We say exercise is the key to living longer, and some of them exercise very little. We avoid alcohol, and they drink wine. Yet both groups are living statistically longer. The researchers on this study concluded that the real reason these women lived so much longer was because of their powerful sense of belonging. 
the community they had not only stimulated their minds, but celebrated their accomplishments and shared their aspirations. It also encouraged their silences, intimately understood their defeats, and nurtured them when their bodies failed them. So maybe the Adventists and the Catholics are more alike than we think. Yes, there is the whole Saturday-Sunday difference, and the Bible does say to remember the Sabbath day. But maybe, maybe the Sabbath is about the community we have created and not the codification of the religion. But before we move on to codification of religion, because I know that's why everyone came today, uh, let's talk about the Israelites for a few moments. They had become slaves to Pharaoh, who was a relentless taskmaster. In Pharaoh's society, more bricks meant more power, more wealth, and more control. Pharaoh had this all-consuming desire to have more, more, and then more again. He wasn't trying to keep up with the Jones. Pharaoh was the Jones. Pharaoh was the one setting the standard for what everyone wanted to be. He was the one driving the fancy car, living in the big house, having the elaborate parties. But to do this, he made the Israelites produce bricks, find their own straw, and then kept increasing the number of bricks they were expected to produce. This became a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week job just to produce bricks. It is clear that in a system like this, there can be no Sabbath rest. This is a system driven by anxiety. Anxiety to have more bricks so I can build a bigger house. Anxiety to produce more food so I can have bigger parties. Anxiety to be the best at what I do, no matter what the cost. So what is the difference between us and the Israelites? The difference is that we have a choice. The Israelites, Israelites had no choice. But you and I, we have the choice to stop the cycle of the acquisition of commodity. We all know how the story goes. The Israelites escaped Egypt and arrive in Mount Sinai, and it is here that the Ten Commandments are given to the Israelites and the generations to follow. When looked at as a whole picture, we're talking about the basic ability to cohabitate in community. Don't kill, don't steal, don't cover your neighbor's wife. The Israelites had forgotten basic human rules for living in community. But beyond that, God gave a commandment on rest and the cessation of work. Not only did God give a commandment on it, he also set an example. For in six days, the Lord made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day and consecrated it, Genesis 20.11 tells us. God rested on the seventh day. He did not show up to do more. He did not go into the office anxious to check on creation to make sure that it was working. God trusted in the system. God is not a workaholic. God's rest counters the drivenness of Pharaoh. Such faithful practice of work stoppage is an act of resistance to busyness. God is asking us to break the anxiety cycle of fearing that we do not have enough. In Matthew 6, we see, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body clothing? 1 John 4, 8 tells us there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. Those who fear are not made perfect in love. When we look at the contrast between what God is offering us and Pharaoh is offering us, the choice is clear. The Israelites were living a life that was motivated by fear. They did what was required of them for fear of punishment, not because it was what their hearts desired. God is offering us a sustainable life versus the fear that God offers, God, sorry, that Pharaoh offers. 
bad word slippage there. Uh, God is offering us love versus the fear that Pharaoh offers us and the abuse that he offers us. God is offering us rest from anxiety, and Pharaoh is offering us a life that is driven by non-stop busyness. God is saying that our life does not have to exist in commodity, that we do not need to be defined by what we have or don't have, freedom from having to worry about where our next meal will come from or how we will be clothed. Doesn't God say, look at the lilies of the valley and aren't they clothed? Aren't we more important than they? God wants us to get out of the mindset that by doing more, we can have more. I teach for a group, which while not Adventist, has a casual familiarization with the Adventist church. We were all at a meeting one Friday afternoon and one of the other faculty members says to me, well, I'll see you tomorrow. And I explained, well, you know, I won't be there. I'm gonna go to church with some friends and have lunch and we're gonna go hiking, but I'll be back on Sunday. And at that point in the conversation, this look of disbelief comes over his face and he says, no way, you're not seventh day, which I thought it was just funny that he said seventh day. That's how they think of us sometimes. But he's like, no way, you're not seventh day. I've been to said Adventist location and you are nothing like them. I would actually be your friend and hang out with you because you're fun. Those people there, they didn't look like so much fun. I must admit, I did not know what to say at that point. Was that a backwards compliment? Uh, was it a total slam against the tribe I love? I don't remember what I said, actually. But I do vaguely remember fumbling through some sort of response that was undoubtedly not great and did not genuinely portray my love of the Sabbath. And more importantly, my deep innate need for the rhythm it provides in my life. When did Sabbath stop being fun? How does our Sabbath observance look to others? Is it something they want to join? Or does it look so hard and solemn that we turn people away? As we move forward through Israel's history, it is not so much about working on the Sabbath, but about how much work the Sabbath has become. The restfulness of Sabbath has become an act of resistance to the mindset of more. I need more. I can do more. I can out more that other person. I can even out more that other person at church which is where we pick up the next part of the Israelite story. In Isaiah 1 and Amos 5, we hear God saying that he is sick and tired of watching their worship. He is tired of their festivals and the bigger and better sacrifices. He is tired of people being excluded because they cannot possibly follow all the rules that are associated with Sabbath keeping. Sabbath has become a show of who can be the most holy. Now, if God cannot stand our worship, how can we expect others to? If God does not want to be there with our parties and our festivals, how can we expect others to want to join us? As this progresses through history, the Sabbath continues to become more and more rule-driven and less and less love-driven. We have created explicit rules laid out to be followed that allow membership into the inclusion of church and Sabbath. So along the lines of membership, we're gonna fast forward again to first century Judaism. The Israelites are in captivity now without a king, a city, or a temple, and they are struggling to find their identity. They are trying to figure out why Yahweh left them and what went wrong, and they decided it was because they had failed to heed his commandments. So they decided they were gonna focus on idolatry and Sabbath breaking as the major sins that had led them astray. They sought to codify religion and protect it from being violated again. Books were filled of rules of what was appropriate Sabbath behavior. For example, one of the rules was that a day's journey could be defined as 3,000 feet. However, if you wanted to travel further, there were provisions for that. 
On Friday, you could strategically place food every 3,000 feet, and by eating the food, it was considered that you were starting a new Sabbath day's journey and could travel another 3,000 feet. And as I was reading this, I just thought, hmm, once again, that sounds a lot like I can wade in the lake up to my ankles, but I can't swim. And I'm sure you know that neither of these Sabbath observance rules are mentioned in the Bible as ways to observe Sabbath. Remember, I said Jesus was obscurely silent on the details. Instead of giving us rules, Jesus gave us an example by showing us how he observed the Sabbath. Jesus was seen as a nonconformist on how the Sabbath should be observed. His accusers insisted that he was breaking the commandments. However, this was just not true. He may have been, he was not breaking the biblical commandments, but the oral law that had been attached to them. Jesus was fighting against the Jewish culture that was so focused on observing the Sabbath that they forgot to observe it. I'm going to break down Jesus' Sabbath activities into two separate categories, things that were acceptable to the leaders of the time and things that were unacceptable. So the acceptable ones are pretty easy, straightforward. He went to synagogue, he participated, he taught, he read scripture, all great things. But you see, the unacceptable things were pretty great also, but not to the eyes of the rabbis. One of the things Jesus did was he healed people. As someone who works in healthcare, it's a little offensive that we can't heal. It's a beautiful thing because it puts human need and love above all others. When Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, it was not the first Sabbath miracle that he had performed. At this point, the Pharisees were actively looking for ways to inculpate him and reason to kill him. The man with the withered hand did not go looking for Jesus. His hand had been like this for a number of years, and we get the impression that he was not in pain. He was just unable to use that hand for activities of functional daily living. He happened to show up to the same synagogue that Jesus was at, and Jesus saw the situation and knew that he had to heal the man. One, because of his love and compassion for the broken. And two, to reveal the hypocrisy in the church. Jesus turned to the religious leaders and said, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? Jesus knew that in this house set apart for worship, that the minds of some there were far from worship. One of the other things that was unacceptable was when Jesus and the disciples stopped in the field to pick grain. There were 11 ordinances against the work involved for baking bread, going all the way back to sowing the seed and picking it. So when Jesus and the disciples were walking through the field and stopped to pick the wheat, they were, in the eyes of the rabbis, in violation of the Sabbath law. So once again, rules were taking precedence over human need. Jesus' ministry was in sharp contrast to the teaching of the religious leaders of his time. He let go of things and focused on people. Jesus let go of meaningless rules and focused on people. The situation of human need always took precedence over the law. So what are we supposed to do? From the beginning of time, God has given us the Sabbath day. It was the first gift to his children. God has told us to remember the Sabbath day, so that is the number one reason we should observe it. Science is now showing us the many health benefits the Sabbath can provide for us. And throughout history, God has interceded again and again in the human race to try to remind us of the true beauty of Sabbath. From delivering the Israelites from the bondage of a life devoted to commodity to Jesus' example of fighting against the legalism and perversion that religion has imposed upon his gift to us. 
Sabbath, like most things, is a continuum along the spectrum. I get it. Rules are really easy. I like rules. It is really easy to check off boxes that say, I went to church, taught Sabbath school, read the scripture, and participated. But the unacceptable, unacceptable side of Jesus' ministry that puts people over rules is much harder. Because love is much harder. It takes effort to love. It is hard to put aside your preconceived notion of how the day should be and just love your neighbor. The Sabbath is a time where we can show love to Jesus and show love to human man, given the examples that Jesus has laid out for us. How can you truly fellowship without love? How can you regard human life without love? So what does your Sabbath look like? Are you making an effort to get to church? But is God listening to your songs saying they are detestable to me? Are you loving your neighbor or are you playing religion games? Are you having a noisy festival or is your worship a flood of justice and love? Is your version of what is appropriate on Sabbath stopping you from loving your neighbor or your pewmate? If Jesus were to walk into your church, would he join in in the worship and praise or would his heart be broken knowing that our bodies are there but that our minds are far from worship? The way I see it, we can err on the side of law, or we can err on the side of love. And for me, I choose love. <laughs>